We are in part five of our Life of Worship series, and I entitled today's message, Who's the King Anyway? And I want to begin by leading up to the fill-in-the-blank that's on your sheet with a couple concepts. Uh, first one, and I've shared this with you before, uh, the word Lord in our Bibles, usually uh, in the translation that we use here currently, uh, the NIV, you'll notice that Lord is translated or written uh, a couple different ways. There's capital O, capital O, uh, capital R, capital D. That is Yahweh, the personal name of God. And then there is capital L and lowercase O-R-D. That is a different word. Now that word actually means master, Lord, boss, one in charge of me, one who's over me, higher status. Now that was used of anybody in society that was over them. So if someone came up and uh, they were a powerful leader of even another area, you would call them Lord or Master. As you approach them, it was a sign of respect. We use the phrase Lord a lot. As a matter of fact, um, we have it on all of our trinkets um, that we buy at the Christian bookstore. We have it on tons of magnets. We have it on our plaques. Um, and we use it a lot in prayer. You'll notice you'll hear the phrase Lord come out a lot. It's in our favorite psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. And we say it a lot. We'll even say the phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Um, when we pray, sometimes we even use it as a buffer zone so we can think of our next line, right? We'll even say things like, and Lord, pause, because we're really trying to figure out what we're going to say next. Now, the word Lord has that very specific definition. Knowing that, let me read a passage to you, and I just want you to let this soak in. Jesus, when talking to his followers, said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house, but couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now we can look at that in a lot of the phrases that we're going to be studying today, and it almost sounds like Jesus is bullying He'd say things like, you're not appropriately reacting to me, and so I just want you to know bad things are going to happen to you and they'll knock you down. That, I don't think that's what he's saying, although it's probably a pretty good warning. I think he's far more practical than that. He said, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Very practically speaking, why are you using a title that doesn't apply? Does that make sense? Nothing super deep under that, other than saying, if you call me your authority, but don't act like I'm your authority, don't use the title. That would only be fair. You wouldn't call me friend if I'm not your friend. You wouldn't call me enemy if I'm not your enemy. So don't call me Lord if I'm not your Lord. Does that make sense? The problem, I think, is that we look at the parable after it, and the parable, we're not quite sure how to read parables, and we all get very confused, and it's talking about building, and we think it's a suggestion on good building tactics. And we're looking and going, man, that's a good idea. 
I think I am going to look for bedrock when I build my next house. You know, we think of this in a sense of, well, maybe you don't know how to build, so let me give you some ideas. The problem is we missed the last line of the parable. The last line of the parable was, and if you do not build on me, the storm hit and its destruction was what? Complete. If you don't build on me, you actually don't have anything. It's an all or nothing parable. We look at it as, well, I probably should have some more foundation or bedrock. That's not what he said. He said, either it's built on the rock or it's not. That's what you need to know. So why do you call me something that I am not to you? I think we wish it was different. That's my opinion. I think we as human beings have a real problem with authority. And I think that we crave autonomy. I want to be my own boss. Don't mess with me. Don't tell me what to do. That's pretty much kind of bred into us. And I think that we wish Jesus meant something else. I think we wish that the Bible didn't talk as clear as it does. And because we wish that, we're almost trying to do a self-created, self-fulfilled prophecy. And we live like he meant something else. We live like it's suggestions. We live like there's multiple options. We look at it almost as a continuum there is completely living in a psycho-pagan, wicked world. And then over here, there is the super spiritual kind of holy roller type. And we basically find ourselves on this big, long continuum. And we're like, well, I'm a little bit more Jesus in this area. I'm a little bit world in this sense. I think we live like that practically. Problem is, Jesus didn't allow that option. He said... Either I am your master or I'm not. We're making something that isn't real. And we're living and hoping that that's legitimate. It's not. As I went through this, I realized last year, we did this year of servanthood, right? And I will tell you that as a pastor, as a leader of this church, I had expectations for that year. When we got done with the year, it exceeded my expectations. And I had pretty high expectations. In the area, one primary area, the area of servanthood towards one another, the change was dramatic and drastic. How we love on each other, how we serve each other, our attitude shifted. We went from an arrogant attitude to a much more humble attitude. We got engaged more with each other. We helped each other out. We have this idea of, oh, prayer requests for other people matter and I need to get involved in their lives. Honestly, it was an extraordinary success in how we love each other. This year, the year of worship, we're trying to focus on the greatest commandment, not the second greatest commandment. Remember, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is likewise, love your neighbor as yourself. We did really well on the second piece. We need to learn that same heart of servanthood towards our Heavenly Father. What does all this mean? It's a fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. It's simply this. There is no Lord without submitting. There is no Lord. 
It's not an appropriate title. There is no Lord without submitting under his authority and allowing him to call the shots. It's the only way we can do it. It's not trying to be mean. It's not trying to be pushy. It's just being practical. If we call him that, we must live as if that's true. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. It's page 195, and the Bible's handed to you. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, we have basically an Old Testament soap opera we're about to go through. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. And some of these stories you look at and you go, no way. It didn't really happen. Okay, first of all, the reason why they recorded is because people went, no way, I can't believe this is happening. Okay, so of course it's weird. Of course it's odd. That's why it's included. If it was just, and Samuel went to Walmart, that's not included in here. Nobody cares. But if it's weird and dramatic, obviously they're going to write it down and go, wow, God was trying to tell us something. So yes, this story is true and what occurred really happened. This is a history book. However, it's written down so that we might live differently now. So let's read the first three verses, then we'll pray and and dive into it. It says, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Oh, well, that's not good. I thought, I, thought, I thought all this time we've been talking about the fact that Samuel, God had baked him with all this hope for Israel. Remember, we had just come from one of the darkest periods in Israel's history, the period of the judges. Everything was nasty and gnarly. And, and Eli, the high priest, God just got rid of him and his corrupt sons. And he was going to start all over with Samuel. And Samuel's rising in stature. And he's leading Israel. I thought we were on an upswing. What happened? Now all of a sudden his sons are just as wicked as Eli's sons and they got to get out of the mix and man, we stumbled right out of the gate. What do you think God's going to do? Let's pray about it. Heavenly Father, today as we sit and listen to your story of life, help us to understand, get it, learn from it and change because of it. Jesus, whether we recognize you as such or not, you are our king. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Help us to fall in line with that now and not wait until it's forced on us later. We submit to you afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to hear a lot about Samuel moving through these books. Why? Well, it's called First and Second Samuel for a reason. So we're going to hear a lot about him, but it's kind of reflecting back and giving you a big picture as we open this up. It's reflecting over and it says, now when Samuel got older, he appointed his sons. He broke off from his sons so that they could manage Israel better. At this time, Samuel was about 60 to 65 years old, realized he's not going to be able to do all the circuit thing the same way. So he takes the north And then uh, about 60 miles south, he sends his sons to go run the south in a city by the name of Beersheba. Now, they were not good kids. He had two kids, and he intended the best for them. He loaded them with potential. Obviously, Samuel's an incredible man, and this is what he named his kids. He named the first one Joel. If your name is Joel, your name means the Lord is God. 
His second one was Abijah. My father is the Lord. So he had all these ideas on how his family was going to raise up. His sons were going to take off where he was involved and everything was going to go awesome. Well, it didn't. They did the very things that God wrote down. Don't ever let this happen. Not on your watch. They did those. Samuel's own kids. Why? We could sit there and speculate all day long. But I know it crushed his heart. It says they turned aside after dishonest gain, accepted bribes, and perverted justice. That's just not going to work. Well, Israel knew it wasn't going to work. So look at the next line. So all the elders of Israel, that means the significant leaders of the tribes and the clans, they all got together in a big group and they gathered together and came to Samuel, the leader, at his hometown of Ramah. They said to him, you are old. That's great start, right? You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. So you're old and your family is garbage. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. A couple things that you need to notice right there. Number one, what did he do when he was troubled? Prayed. Is that what you do? Or do you go, well, I got to figure it out myself. Right off the bat, he got irritated at what they just said. Instead of stewing about it, lashing back, doing all the things that he wanted to do, probably, he went in and started engaging with his Lord. What you will find from here on out is Samuel is heavily characterized as a man of prayer. He prays all the time. He intercedes for the people. He seeks God a lot. And that's very significant as to how he leads. But why did he get so ticked off? Because let's look at it practically. All right, I'm a big practical guy. Let's say you live in Israel. You just came through the period of the judges. How has leadership been? Pretty lousy, yeah? It's not working. I mean, really, it all depends on what deliverer raises up and he helps people out in a certain area, but then he turns corrupt. And then all of a sudden we've been looking forward to who? Eli? Eli's sons are horrible. Eli is a completely miserable leader. He ends up having to get wiped out by God. There's no consistency, no unity in the nation. Why wouldn't you want a king? Doesn't that seem like what would be logical? I don't blame them at all for wanting a king. Then why did it irritate Samuel? Because right off the bat, it meant one thing at least. Change of government. From what to what? From theocracy to monarchy. You go, okay, what do those terms mean? Theocracy run by God. God created the Jewish nation that he would be their king. What are they doing right here? Kicking him out and saying he's an unfit leader. He's not good enough. He hasn't led us well. So we want to change methods. We want to change government to a monarchy for the first time. You understand why that irritates him a little bit? All right. It's not about his own leadership. He's not worried about losing power for himself. He's concerned of what it means for the nation and what it means for God. So then, verse 7, And the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me, 
serving other gods. And so they're doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. All right. Now we see that God's irritated. Not just as Samuel irritated, God's irritated. What is the real problem with the king? He said, well, you already told that. It kicks God out. Well, in Deuteronomy, God already told Moses, once you get into the new land, at some point, I'm going to have you set up a king. The king was not the problem. As a matter of fact, he had provisions and directions for how to set up a king for Israel. Israel was always going to have a king. Then why is he so upset? Two things. Motivation and timing. God was going to set up a king in his timing and the appropriate king. They're rushing it, not waiting on him, not doing it his way, and they're going to mess it up. Motivation. What is their motivation for wanting a king? You go, well, there's stability and everything. That's not what they said. What did they say? We want to have a king like all the other nations have. Why does that irritate God? Because he designed the Jews specifically to not be like all the other nations. It ruins the point of the Jewish nation. God does not need another people group to all have us memorize and try to figure out who the Israelis are. He does not need another group like every other group. He needed a group that was different. He wanted a group that treated him differently, that was the light of the world. They were supposed to be completely different. But no matter what he did with them, they just wanted to be like everybody else. I don't want to be different. I want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. And God said, I don't like that. That's not what we're doing here. You're ruining what you're doing. Is this not the same with the church today? I mean, make it practical. Church, body of Christ. If we lower down, do everything the world does, it ruins the point of salt and light in the world. We are no longer a church. If Remember I told you last week, if we gather together and we are only a group of people wanting to listen to a motivational speaker, we're wasting our time. There's a lot of groups that can do that. There's a lot of speakers that could do it better. We could all be using our time more wisely. That's not what we're doing here. What we're doing is changing our hearts, sitting at the feet of God, listening to his word, and promoting the worship of his name. That's what we're doing. If we're not advancing the kingdom, this is useless. We want to be like everybody else. We want to just do what they do. That's not all right. The other thing that I thought was interesting is they don't ever try to examine why the leadership hasn't worked. They didn't look back and go, wow, the main reason that God hasn't been able to do stuff through us is because our hearts are screwed up. Nobody decides to look at that. They all went, God must be a bad leader. Couldn't be our fault. It's got to be God's fault. I mean, look at all this bad stuff. Why did the period of the judges happen? Because of idolatry, walking away from God. If you do that, things aren't going to go so well. That's not God's problem. That's your problem. Right? All right. Let's make it personal. How are you doing with God leading you? You ever wrestle against that? You ever want to quit Christianity? Do you ever want to just say God's a bad leader? 
Now, you wouldn't say it out loud. That would make you feel like a monster. So you're not going to say that. You're just going to live that way. In your prayers or lack of, you demonstrate that. In your worship or lack of, you demonstrate that. God let you down. God didn't fulfill. God didn't handle this. God's a terrible leader. Not quite sure who to go with next. So you're going to try to hedge your bets. Move it all out, your investments. Have a little bit in God, a little bit in self, a little bit in money, a little bit in something else. Make sure that you have it even across the board so that at any time you can have somewhere else to run if you don't like how things are going. Isn't that how we live? That's not okay. Let me ask you this. What has God done that has made him such a bad leader to you? Well, he let this happen and this is, and my life's not going. You know what? Now we've lost everything. We've lost our house. And I just keep praying. He doesn't fix it. And I got this and I got that. All right. How much of that is because we live in a broken world and we as human beings said no to God and set off a chain reaction of rebellion, chaos, and consequence? How much of that when we didn't do it God's way? I don't think that's because God's a bad leader. I think it's because we're bad followers. Right. And how much in your life currently, like you say, man, Christianity is so hard. I just want to give up and I'm tired of trying to be good and blah, 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 blah. Right. Why? Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're heavily burdened, come to me and I'll set you free. So why is Christianity heavy? Well, because there's this. Stop. Consider the difficulty in your life right now how much of it has come from drama you brought into your life how much of the struggles that you go through and the fighting i'm under this addiction wait who started the addiction did god ask you to start that well i'm struggling with my okay hold on when we make poor decisions it makes it harder than next time and then we make that decision and it makes it harder the next time how much garbage are you carrying around and am I carrying around because we didn't actually follow the Lord and now we're dealing with hurts from it? Huh? Is that God's leadership problem? I would suggest to you that we're just not trying Christianity right. That's why it's so heavy. If we were all in, abandoned, did what Jesus wanted, Jesus would lead us towards freedom and healing. And he would lead us consistently towards lightness, not heaviness. But we always go, God, you're a disappointment. Look at my life. I don't think that's true. I think the problem might remain in our hearts. I think part of what we're doing here today is restoring our joy in a good king. He's actually an exceptional leader. He's actually tremendously loving and shockingly he is looking out for our best interest that's what we're missing we've got so locked on our circumstance we're not even seeing god rightly anymore stop fighting against your help stop fighting against the one that is trying to set you free as he's unshackling you you're screaming at him he's not doing it fast enough then quit wiggling Right? Let's get back to it. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. 
He'll take your sons, make them serve with his chariots and horses. They'll run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you on that day. Oh, look, there's God bullying again. You don't want another king because he's going to be bad to you. You want me. No. Once again, practical. Hey, you guys, real quick, if we switch from theocracy to monarchy, who's going to set up that government and pay for it? Where do you think that money's coming from? Do you really think you can just set up a king and what? He's going to make his own living? He doesn't have to set up a standing army. He doesn't have to set up all the organizational systems to run a nation. Where exactly is that coming from? Oh, that's right. Your back pocket. Do you realize that for him to set up a cabinet, for him to set up its government system, he is going to take from you. He'll take the best from you and he will use it to pay his staff. And to run a nation, it will take a lot and it will consistently be consumed. You think you have it hard now. If you set up this type of government, just understand you have to pay for it. Is everybody clear on what they're asking for? Do you understand what that's all he's going through? So let me ask you this. If you are tired of following the Lord, what is your other option? What are you trading for? Because whoever that other leader is, there's a cost to it, right? Now, let's say you want to trade God for yourself. And you say, well, I'm going to run my life. I'm tired of God telling me what to do. I feel like he's impinging on my freedom. So I want to cast off restraint and be my own leader. There's a cost to that. Number one, you're not a great leader. Just thought I'd let you know that. And how do we know that? Well, you haven't been so awesome yet. Okay. So historically, you're pretty dismal. Second of all, you can't secure the next step, which is called eternity. Because you don't know how to do it. You've never been there before. So if you don't secure eternity, which is the longest part of your life, are you a good choice to be the leader? Does that make sense? You need a leader that will lead you appropriately now and future. There's only one. There's only one option. Jesus Christ on the cross secured one option. We don't have another one. If you want... Freedom, it will cost you something else. You understand? But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Pause. Wasn't that what God was doing? Ah, he wasn't good enough. When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to him and give him a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, everybody go back home. Huh. Why would God do that? You know that's not what God wants. Why doesn't God just step in and go, you know what? 
I totally understand your concern. Your timing's off. Your motivation's completely wrong. We're not doing that right now. Why in the world would he cave and say, all right, let's get a king? Because what you're about to find out, not only does he allow it, he goes and picks one for him. Why would God do that? I don't know. Why does he do it with you? Right? Isn't that what we've done? God, I want this. I want this. That's not good for you. But he allows you to have it anyway. Why would God do that? Is that bad parenting or good parenting? Sometimes God, after you lean on the door and keep going, I want out of here, I want out of here, I want out of here. At some point, he's going to open the door and you're going to fall through it. And he'll go, hey, where are you going? And you just take off running because all you want to do is get out, right? Run, 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 run. And he's going, wow, look at you. You're fast. (laughs) At some point, you get exhausted. You've been running so long. And when you run out of energy and you stop, he's going to look at you and go, where were you headed? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I'm uh... Now what? What's your plan? Well, I don't have a plan. I didn't really think it through. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, I'm going to go back to the house. I'm not sure what you're doing, but I'm going to go ahead and hang out over here. Is that all right? Well, why, why would he do that? Because sometimes parents have to establish boundaries if you're going to fight against me every day. Go ahead. Now what? It's calling your bluff. It's allowing you to realize you don't want what you think you want. So God said, all right, let's do this. I'll get you a king. I'll get one exactly like you want. Would God really lay stuff out like that? Yeah, he would. One of my favorite speeches of all time, the end of Joshua, right before the period of the judges, Joshua is wrapping up his uh, leadership and he says to Israel, hey, everybody come here for a second. Let's, let's be honest. Choose today who you want to serve. If serving God seems appropriate to you, serve him with all your heart. If serving God does not seem desirable to you, then choose who you will serve and do that with all your heart. But as for me and my house, we're going to go ahead and serve the Lord. Now, what do you want? All of the nation said, we want God. And he goes, no, you don't. They said, no, 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 seriously, we do. And he goes, you don't understand. God won't share you. No, 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 we're all in. Sign a covenant and ratify it before God. Lock us into a promise. Absolutely, we're all God. Okay. Ratifies a covenant and we start the darkest period in Israel's history. What was the point? No, you didn't. You didn't want all God. You wanted part God. You wanted his protection. You wanted to use him. So no, it didn't go so awesome. And now he's riding the ship. Okay, let's get moving forward. Now we're in chapter 9, and I'm going to paraphrase, obviously, because we're going through a lot of passages today. But let me share with you a little bit about how this story goes. This is the soap opera I was telling you about. How God brings a king. There was a very wealthy man by the name of Kish. Kish was from the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember, Israel has 12 tribes. They're Reuben and Judah and Ephraim and Manasseh and Naphtali, all these guys. One of them is Benjamin because they're all brothers, right? Some of them have different moms, but they all had the same dad. So they all had their names attached to these tribes. And if you remember Joseph, coat of many colors guy, right? 
Technicolor Dreamcoat guy, right? We all know who he is. All right, now Joseph, his blood brother, he had one little brother, and his brother's name was Benjamin. He was the last to be born. He was the tiniest of most of the tribes. He's pretty small, not the smallest, but pretty close. Well, he has a very rocky history. After his nation gets going, there ends up being a civil war where all the tribes attack that one tribe, decimate it down to only 600 men. I mean, there's all kinds of craziness and wickedness and weirdness that winds through their history in the book of Judges. By the time we get here, the Benjamin tribe is really odd, pretty well decimated. This is where Kish lived. Kish had a son by the name of Saul. Now, one day, all Kish's donkeys go missing. Why they lost a bunch of donkeys, I have absolutely no idea. It was apparently donkey road trip day, and no one decided to let him know that. So all the donkeys took off. Now, what Dad said is, hey, son, come here for a second. Grab one of your buddies, one of our servants, and I need you to go find them for us. Well, they took three days and did this whole long circuit through all the towns looking for their dad's donkeys right? They never find them. They're terrible at this. Why is that important? Well, one commentator made the really astute observation. What did David do before he was called to be the leader of Israel? He's a shepherd. Was he a good one? He was extraordinary. Saul can't find his donkey if he tried. (laughs) You understand what we're talking about? Saul was horrible at this. He can't corral a donkey. He can't find an enormous donkey anywhere. He's wandering from town to town. Guess how the donkeys get back? Without him. They go back home on their own. And he's still wandering around. He's a terrible shepherd. And it begins to show some of the problems that are going on. So, sure enough... He's out there wandering around. It says, finally, they got to the place where they're going, we're not going to find the donkeys. And now we've been gone too long. Dad's going to be worried about us. So they said, we got to call this. We got to get back home. As evening drew near, they were walking into their last city and these ladies came out to go draw water. They would draw water just at the cool of the evening. And his servant goes, Saul, you realize we're in Samuel's town, right? Who? Samuel, the seer, the prophet guy. What if we give him some cash? He'll tell us where our donkeys are. Saul's like, okay, let's do that. They go walking in and they say to the ladies, hey, is Samuel home? The ladies go, yeah, he just got back into town from doing his circuit judging. And he's going to have a big banquet tonight. You're right in time. So he said, cool. So they go walking into the city. As they walk in, out walks Samuel. And God had told Samuel, tomorrow... When you're walking out, you're going to see the next king of Israel. He's going to come up and talk to you. And God confirms as Samuel walks out, that's the guy. So he walks up and Saul says, hey, do you know where the seer, super powerful prophet guy named Samuel is? And Samuel goes, hi, I'm the super powerful seer prophet guy. Oh, nice to meet you. Anyway, we had some business with you. Why is that important? Because Samuel is the biggest leader of Israel, the spiritual director of Israel. Saul has lived next to him within five miles his whole life and has no idea who Samuel is. 
uh-oh, he's going to be the next leader of Israel? He has zero spiritual background. He has zero understanding of the Lord's working. He has zero understanding of what God is doing in Israel. So Samuel says, hey, I'm glad to meet you. I'm having a banquet tonight. I would like you to be my guest, both of you guys. I want you to come and hang out. Afterwards, you guys can stay at my house. So they go walking into this banquet. There's all these important people there. Samuel sets Saul down in a very uh, appropriate high position place. Leans back to the cook and says, hey, remember that piece of meat I asked you to set aside? I need you to bring it here. Hand it to this guy. Saul's going, okay, this is kind of a weird day. I was kind of just looking for donkeys, right? And now I'm sitting in, I don't even know who you are. The guy comes and brings the thigh of an animal and sets it down before Saul. You look and you go, okay, why does that matter? Because the thigh portion of the meat is only for who? Priests. Regular people don't eat that. Not in that manner. So what was Samuel saying? He was treating him like a priest of Israel, and he wasn't one. Something's weird is going on. Something's different about this guy. So they go through the whole meal, and afterwards they go and they stay at Samuel's house. The next morning, they're getting ready to go, and Samuel says, Hey, can you have your buddy go on ahead of us? I've got to tell you something from the Lord. He said, Sure. Hey, man, do you mind? And he goes, No, 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 it's good. I added all that. that. They didn't really say that. Anyway, <laughs> you're reading your Bible, you're like, I have no idea where we're at, okay? Okay, that's because this is my paraphrase. So anyway, he says, I have a message from the Lord, pulls out a flask of olive oil and pours it over Saul's head, gives him a respectful kiss and says, you're the next king of Israel. Now you have to imagine the mind-bending concept of Saul going, okay, whoa, I didn't expect that. That's weird. So what? I'm king. I don't, I don't really know what that means. I don't even know if this is real. Samuel said, I'm going to give you three confirmation signs. As you walk out and you're on your way home, you're going to go past the tomb of Rachel. And you're going to have two men approach you and they're going to say, hey, the donkeys are back home. Your dad's worried about you. Number one. Number two, as you walk past the great tree, you're going to have three men approach you and they're going to have offerings on their way to go offer them to the Lord. They're going to offer you two loaves of bread. Take them. Three, just as you walk to your hometown, there will be a huge band of crazy looking, crazy acting prophets. They're going to come cruising up with all these instruments. The spirit of God is going to hit you and you're going to join them and start prophesying. As all that locks down, you know that it's real. Well, what? It says, as soon as Saul turned away from Samuel, God changed his heart. I believe that means that Saul started going, no way, this is real. I think this is possible. As he's heading home, one by one, all the things hit. Exactly. As he walks into his hometown, here comes the band of players. They're crazy. They're dancing before God. They're yelling and saying all kinds of weird stuff. They're prophesying on God. Saul walks up, Spirit of God hits him like a ton of bricks. He starts prophesying, joins in with all of them, and everybody from town is going, what's happening? Who is this guy? I know Saul. He's never been like this. Why is he doing this? Something weird is happening in Israel. Some people looked and go, man, that guy's a loser. The other people looked at him and go, no, I think something's important. So then what? It says... I skipped through them. Look at that. Isn't this nice? Saul finally gets home. 
His uncle goes, hey, how'd the trip go? Yeah, it's all right. Anything happen? Well, we ended up seeing Samuel. I don't know if you've heard of him. But anyway, super important. Anyway, we were asking about the donkeys, and he's like, the donkeys are home, and they're safe. And the uncle goes, that's it? Yeah, why? Nothing else. Nope. Doesn't say anything about being anointed as king over all Israel. Why? I don't know. I don't think he wanted to be. So then, Samuel calls this huge meeting. Right? All Israel, come here. We're about to announce the next king of Israel. I don't know how much longer this is, right? I mean, this is seven. You know, they do the seven days thing, wait for me, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how long it's been. Samuel grabs all the leaders of Israel, calls them together and says, God is about to select the very first king of all Israel. So sure enough, they all gather and they're wondering, I wonder if it's me, I wonder if it's me, blah, 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 right? We now call forward the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. God has selected, right? This is like the lottery draft, right? For first draft pick, Benjamin. Everyone's like, oh, whoa, yeah, look, Benjamin got selected, right? And that tribe steps forward, their leaders. He now, God selects the clan of Matri. Yay, Matri. They all step forward, a whole crew of them. God selects Saul. Yay, everybody claps for him. Oh, we got a new king. Woo, can't wait to see him. Where's he at? He's not here. Awesome. Our king is missing. Hey, anybody know where Saul is? Nope. Can somebody go ask God where Saul is? Yeah, hold on a second. Hey, God, where's Saul? You just picked him. He's hiding in the baggage. He's what? He's hiding. Go get him. All right, cool. Can somebody go get the guy out of the baggage, please? (laughs) They go out, and he's back there hiding. He's like, they'll never find me here, right? God completely exposes him. They grab him. Saul, our new king! They lead him out, and he's like, hi, guys. Hey, what's up, right? Completely tried to get out of there. Now, over and over, it says, when he stood out among Israel, he was a head taller than everybody else. Why does it keep saying that? It'll say he's good looking, a young man that was strong, and wow, he's really tall. Why do they keep saying that? Because God selected out a king that they would want, not that he would want. I always struggled with the idea of why God picked Saul if he was only going to knock him out later. Why start so badly? Because he's telling them a lesson. He's going, I know what kind of king you want, and I'm going to pick the best of what you want. You know what? He's not my man. He doesn't have my heart. He doesn't even know who I am. But you know what? He's tall. All right. That's good. Ah, Look at him. Look at him. Tall. Wow. And that was it. They all, yay, long live the king. Some guys are saying, oh, I think he's bogus. And there's all this mixed reaction. Well, then he goes home. You go, well, what, that's it? Don't you do something kingly? They didn't have any structure in place. What do you do now? Oh, God has to set up a structure. The last chapter, chapter 11. In 1051 BC, Saul is approximately 30 years old. And Nahash... The king of the Ammonites. Guess what Nahash means? 
Snake. We're going to call him Snake from here on out. Snake, Harley rider, has tats, drives up. <laughs> he doesn't really. There weren't motorcycles back then. Oh, anyway, I just thought I would explain that to some of you. All right. Nahash of the Ammonite clan or the Ammonite peoples or the Ammonite nation come up to attack an Israeli city. So let me tell you a little bit about who they are. Imagine a map. And if I was organized, there would be a map. Imagine a map right in front of us. And Israel is long and narrow. And I found out this last week, Israel's size is the same as Massachusetts. So if you ever look at the map of the United States, that's Israel. Uh, you look at it and it's narrow. On the left-hand side is the Mediterranean Ocean. On the coast, last week, we said they were getting attacked from the left-hand side by who? The Philistines. The Ammonites are all the way on the right. If you look at the map of Israel, there's a line right down the middle of it. It's called the Jordan River. The Jordan River connects the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus grew up, down to the Dead Sea, which is in the south. And all the tribes... Uh, most of the tribes, 10 of the tribes are on the left-hand side. Only two and a half tribes are on the other side. But Israel is the whole section. The Ammonites are in the south on the right side, right next to Israel underneath them. And they were pressing in from the east. So there's all this fight for territory. The Ammonite people came from Lot. Anybody remember who Lot is? Okay, if you remember the Sodom and Gomorrah story, that's Lot. His wife, pillar of salt lady. Remember that? All right. So Abraham's nephew, Lot, came out of Sodom and Gomorrah and in his fleeing had a very, very creepy story. I don't know if you ever have read it, but do not read it to your children. His youngest daughter had his lineage known as the Ammonite people. His oldest daughter had the Moabite people. So if you ever wonder why they're warring later on, that's where they came from. So the Ammonites are a whole nation by this time fighting in. Nahash is the king, Snake. So Snake comes up and right at the river, there's a city called Jabesh Gilead. He comes up and attacks it and completely knocks them out, wipes them out. And they said, okay, clearly you beat us up. Make a treaty with us. We will honor you and pay you tribute. He said, no, nope, not unless I can gouge all your right eyes out, which is kind of brutal, right? You're like, what? You only gouge an enemy's eyes out for two reasons. One, they violated a treaty with you, which is very likely that they had violated a treaty. Or two, to knock them out in a military sense, because you lose all depth perception when you lose your right eye. Most of them were right-handed. So it would completely throw off what they were doing, and so it makes them weaker. He said, all right, we'll do that if I can gouge out all your right eyes. And they said, well, I'm not really into that so much. Um, here's the deal. How about you give us seven days to find reinforcements? If not, we'll surrender. And he goes, okay. I don't even understand what everyone's doing. This is the dumbest fight story ever. Don't let people have seven days to get reinforcements. What is your problem? Apparently, Snake's not all that intelligent, okay? So he's totally convinced that he'll win the war again. Well, they all, all the people run, and they're like, I don't know where we're going to get reinforcements. Ah, and they're running, right? They run into Israel, into a city where Saul lives, right? 
So Saul's coming in from the fields with his oxen as the king of Israel. He's still working in the fields. He comes walking in with supplies and hears all the people crying. And he says, hey, what's going on? I said, the people from Jabesh Gilead just walked in. The Ammonites just sacked them and said they're going to destroy them if they don't get any reinforcements. It says the spirit of God hit him with righteous indignation and strength. He gets enraged and says, this will not happen on my watch. And he grabs the cattle, the two cows, cuts them into 12 pieces, mails them out to all the tribes of Israel, says, this will happen to you. If you don't assemble for war, come down and back up your brothers and sisters. Now that is how a king gets rolling. Now, why did he get so mad about them attacking that city? Why does he care? Is it because of the whole nation? No, weird tie-in. Remember I told you there was a civil war where all the nations fought against one tribe, his tribe? That happened over another creepy incident that you don't read to your children. When that happened, Benjamin was decimated. And in order for them to bounce back, they had to get wives. So Israel looked around for any of the cities that didn't get involved in the fight. The only city named was Jabesh Gilead. So they went in and took all their women and allowed them to be the wives of the Benjamites. It is likely that that is Saul's mom's hometown. The best way to trigger a nation is to attack their king's mother. You understand what happened? All this happened to coincide. So he goes, no way. You're not messing with my mom's hometown. He gets all of Israel assembled together. The second largest standing army call shows up. 330,000 warriors of Israel. They all show up. Yes, sir, right? Now this is leadership. He says, we're breaking into three companies, we'll attack them in the middle of the night, and we'll destroy them. They sneak in at between 2 and 6 a.m., they go in for the hit and absolutely demolish the Ammonite people. And all of Israel, yeah, Saul's awesome. Where are the people that said he couldn't lead? Let's bring him out here and kill him. And Saul said, hold up, hold up. God gave us victory. I'm starting to get that now. We're not killing anybody today. Just go home. We're on a roll. And that is how the first king of Israel got started. Weird? Very. Does it get weirder? A whole lot worse. Right? That's kind of a cliffhanger. We move into the next section. Why do we care about this stuff? Why is this important? You go, I'm reading this stuff. I mean, it's interesting. It's kind of weird, but I don't get how it applies to me. You sure? Who are you putting in charge of your life? Is God going to give you something that you keep saying, I want that, I want that, I want... What if you get that? What's going to happen next? What if it's not right? What if it's not what God desires? What if He lets you have what you want? When you make a choice to follow someone, You're making a call as to a cost. This is about to cost Israel their whole nation. Because of having a monarchy in the wrong way, it ends up leading to the ultimate civil war that divides the whole nation after Solomon. That division allows the top 
to get wiped out in captivity and the south to get wiped out in captivity. Who are you following? I know that you and I do not understand the Lord's leadership. I know that we get frustrated. I know we lose our perspective. But today, realign that you are following a good God, a righteous God, an excellent king, who is looking out for your best interest, that will do things appropriate. Do what he says every time, first time. Because we have too many examples in Scripture of people trying it another way, and it doesn't work. Must we all go through the same exact lessons every single time? Why can we not learn from history? Why can we not today, afresh, bow our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I am so thankful for you. I'm thankful for the way that you guide me and discipline me and come after me and rescue me and keep me from hurting myself. We always think about wanting God's protection from external threat. Shouldn't we also trust God for internal threat? Shouldn't we allow God to protect us from ourselves? I know you don't think God's a good leader sometimes, but he is. Every time. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for rescuing us. Indeed, Lord, you have rescued us just as you did Israel from an impossible situation. No matter how much they could have fought against Egypt, it wouldn't have mattered. They couldn't have got out. But you did this supernatural, miraculous thing and delivered them. Lord, we were stuck underneath our sin, unable to save ourselves. There was nothing we could do, and yet you came in in a miraculous, extraordinary fashion, broke sin's hold on us, and set us free. And we've been complaining ever since. We are sorry, and we ask, Lord, that you would restore our confidence in you. Not by you doing different, but about us adjusting our perspective. Lord, you are good. And we are so thankful for you. We want to follow you. We want to run after you. You are the best way every time. God, help us to align our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.